Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. I want to talk about, I want to start this morning with stoplights. Uh, and unlike most conversations about stoplights in Cowlitz County, we're not going to talk about timing or about uh, how fast you get to go somewhere. Uh, I want to talk about stoplights as a fascinating, I think, little peek into social psychology. So we live in a society that poll after poll tells us that we do not trust each other. We are divided. We don't trust each other. We assume the worst about other people over and over again. Uh, I don't know if you grew up in an environment where your mom would say, sure, go hang out at Mr. Johnson's place down the street, come back after dark. Um, that is not the environment I grew up in. It's certainly not the environment my kids are growing up in. I'm pretty sure CPS would be called on me if I said you can go play at Mr. Johnson's and I didn't have a background check in hand. Like it, we don't trust each other, except at stoplights. Now, I don't know if you have ever thought about, and it may say something about my trust issues that I have thought about, how much trust we give other people at a stoplight. You trust and assume that the other people around you are going to respond to the stoplight in the way that they are supposed to. When you are going through a green light, you assume that the red light coming the other way, they're going to stop. You have to assume that, or we'd all be driving around at half a mile an hour. You assume, probably rightly, but you assume that when you pull out, because you now have a green light and you go, that the car sitting there next to you didn't just have a really bad day and is going to ram into you just for the fun of it. We trust each other at stoplights. Uh, so, uh, I, I will confess that this is honestly something that I have been working on for a while now, being okay with sitting at a stoplight, which may be to distract myself. This is why I'm thinking of all these trust things, but whatever. I, I, I can be a very impatient person, uh, especially when I am late or uh, feel like I'm letting somebody down by not getting where I'm supposed to be on time. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't love sitting at stoplights, particularly when you can be sitting there for a minute and a half and you're the only one at the stoplight. However, I also know that stoplights are there for the good of everybody because this is the best way that we have come up with to be able to have other cars, have a whole bunch of cars, come up to an intersection, a crossroads, and everybody get home safely. And because we like everybody to get home safely, we have stoplights. If you have a better solution, that is fantastic. I hope you make billions. Uh, but for now, best we know is stoplights. So stoplights are there for the good of everybody. That's fantastic. It doesn't mean I have to love sitting at them, but I can go, okay. Uh, this, is, this is here for everybody. Okay, so let's get a little philosophical with this, as if trust is not philosophical enough. If stoplights are made for the good of everybody, is the stoplight made for humanity, or are humans made to follow the stoplight? And we would say, okay, the stoplight was made to take care of people. It's there for the good of everybody, right? Stoplight is for people, not the other way around. A little more philosophical. Uh, 
if, as we believe, God made gravity? Did God make gravity looking forward to humans and saying, I would like something to hold them on this orb so I will give them gravity so that they don't go floating off into space? Or did God make gravity and go, this thing is amazing. What I really need is some awkward looking things that will be held down by this amazing force I just created. Did God make gravity for humans or humans to be held down by gravity? Why are we asking silly questions about gravity and stoplights? Believe it or not, it is for this truth, I hope. There it goes. When we start to believe that a rule is more important than a person, the rule will become a burden. If we start to believe that a rule is more important than a person, that the person is made to follow the rule, not that the rule is there for the person. Stoplights are a great example. If I start to believe that this rule and it getting in my way is more important than the people around me, the stoplight starts to feel like a burden. This is slowing me down. If I believe that the people around me and their safety and us all getting home safely is more important, now the stoplight is a thing that I can sit at and go, okay, I'm doing my part in everybody getting home safely because people are more important than the rule. When we start to believe a rule is more important than a person, the rule will become a burden either to others or to ourselves. Parents, if you make a rule and you feel like that rule is so important that your kid has to follow it, whether it is good for your child or not. Hopefully the rules you are making are good for your child and that that's the, the lens that you're seeing them through. But if it starts to flip and it becomes more about the rule than what is good for your kid, that rule will be a burden to you and to your child. In the New Testament, we read of a group of people called Pharisees who have made rules as a stand-in for their relationship with God. They don't really have an interactive relationship with God. They're not quite sure how to know that they're on, in a good relationship with God. So they just keep adding rules, feeling like if I can just make more expectations and I then meet the expectations that I've created that I'm giving God credit for, then I will feel like I have a good relationship with God. And if you make rules a stand-in, a proxy, an idol, in place of God, then suddenly the rules are more important than God or than people because we've made the rules the God. For example, in Mark uh, chapter two, starting in verse 23, we see this story. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off the heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? So there's a day set aside that God has set aside. As a rule, you will not be doing hard things on this day. And so the Pharisees come along and say, hey, we have a rule against harvesting on the Sabbath. Why are your people harvesting on the Sabbath and breaking this law? And for them, what Jesus' disciples are doing is 
directly disrespecting God. And so they justifiably do not want to disrespect God. They want all people to honor God. And so this is a big deal to them. And as we talked about last week, this law of Sabbath is a big deal to God. It is in the big 10 commandments. More words in the 10 commandments are dedicated to this one than any of the other nine. This one is a big deal to God. So with that in mind, let's go look at what this law actually says that the Pharisees are saying Jesus's disciples are breaking. So this is found in Exodus chapter 20 in this whole list starting in verse eight. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. In other words, I'm not just telling you, you don't get to work, so get other people to do it for you, but like your household is going to, to stop. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Is there anything in what I just read that says, no harvesting. No, not directly. There is no command that we will not harvest on the Sabbath. However, in their agricultural culture, they rightly interpreted no ordinary work as harvesting for those who are harvesters as part of their ordinary everyday work. But... Picking the heads of grain off of the wheat on the side of the road is hardly harvesting. In fact, if we look through other laws of God, God is actually really explicit with the people that they need to leave crops along the roadway like wheat unharvested on purpose so that those who are traveling along the roadside, foreigners passing through, anybody passing by, can take some and have something to eat. It was so important to God to take care of the foreigners around Israel, those who did not know him, that he said, you will leave some snacks behind for those who are traveling through, just like Jesus and his companions were traveling through. So Jesus could have rightly said, I had a whole argument with them about the hypocrisy of this. Like, look, it, you've, you've really doubled down on this harvesting rule thing. And, and there, there are laws here that permit us to do this. He could have had a law argument with them. But instead, what we see uh, Jesus do is have a human argument with them based on uh, another story in, in Scripture. It's helpful to know that in Jesus's day, the, the Pharisees revered King David. David had been king of Israel, of their people, of God's people, a thousand years earlier, and he went down in history as a man after God's own heart. He had the relationship with God that the Pharisees were trying to have by adding rule on top of rule. They wanted a relationship like that. And so if David did something wrong, 
and it was not expressly condemned by God in their stories, they could go, well, he must have been justified in doing that, in breaking that rule for, for some reason. Well, one day, David felt justified in breaking a rule of God and eating food that was set aside as sacred, that was set aside in the temple specifically for the priest to eat. And yet David, because he was on the run, running for his life, scared and hungry, and he was with a whole bunch of other people who were running for their life and scared and hungry, he felt justified in asking the priest, kind of demanding the priest, give him that food so that he and his companions could eat it. And this apparently was justifiable. You can read the story for yourself in 1 Samuel 21. But if we go back to Mark chapter 2, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he recaps the story for us and for them. Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was the high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. So where Jesus could have had an argument about law, he said, hey, let's talk about people for a second. Remember that time when David prioritized people over the rules, and then he doubles down on this people-focused argument in verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If you ever hear about the Sabbath today, if you've heard talks about it or, or sermons about it or, or whatever, often it feels really burdensome, feels heavy. This thing that you have to do because it's important. It feels very legalistic and like, oh, I have to do it. And I have to do it in these certain ways. And it has to look like this. And, and on top of that, it just feels so impossible. There is always something else to do. Kids don't take a Sabbath day very well. It turns out there's still kids and they still need attention and care and food and things probably expensive things. It turns out that your boss wants you to work 70 hours a week and you're not sure how you get a day off in that. It turns out that the world just keeps running and if your business, if your project, if, if your life is going to advance the way you want it to, you can't just stop. It just feels impossible. Now, if a direction feels like a burden, I think it feels that way for one of two reasons. One, we've already talked about, that somehow that direction, that rule, that order has become more important than people. And so it feels like a burden. The other is when a direction or rule or command feels so opposite of what we actually desire. Your boss says, I want you to work on this project, but, but you wanna work on this one. Your parents say no dating, but that girl in math class is really cute. 
You know you shouldn't go to that website, but you really want to. Directions begin to feel burdensome when it is so opposite of our desires. For example, love your neighbor. Sorry, not love your neighbor. That one I can do. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. I don't want to. That does not match my desires at all. Take revenge against your enemy. Now we're talking. That's just not what he said. Love your enemy. It goes against what my desires are. And then if I decide, well, I guess I have to, so I will do something nice for this person I don't like, and you're doing it because of the rule, it is still going to feel burdensome because it's not actually love. Because you haven't made it about the person, you've made it about following the rule. This is why I think the words of Jesus are so important here. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. See, Sabbath is not primarily a rule. It is primarily God's gift to you. Sabbath is not primarily a rule. It is God's gift to you, handcrafted made carefully by a loving God who made the world. This is a gift for us. You are not made to fulfill God's Sabbath rule. The pattern of Sabbath, of life as a rhythm of work and creativity and rest is God's gift for you. So what is Sabbath actually for? Why would God see this as a gift for us? I heard uh, author and professor Ruth Haley Barton in an interview say that Sabbath is primarily for three things. And I think it's a really good sum up of what scripture teaches us. And the first is rest. Sabbath is, we may have died. Sabbath is for, there we go. Sabbath is, for rest. Now, if you roll your eyes at this and go, ain't nobody got time for that, that would be why God has commanded us to do it. When, when the Jewish people observed Sabbath, Sabbath was Saturday, what we would call Saturday. Sabbath did not start at midnight on Saturday. It didn't start at daybreak on Saturday. It actually started nightfall, Friday night. So Sabbath started with a meal, some family time, and sleep. <laughs> that Sabbath actually started out of a place of rest. We started talking last week as we are in the new year here about growth, about how we grow. And I think it's important to start here, to start at a Sabbath, to start with rest, that we would grow out of this place of Sabbath rest and trust. See, left to our own devices, many of us, 
will spend our lives trying to prove that we don't have limits, that there is nothing you can't accomplish or overcome. I mean, sure, you can't dunk or fly because of that pesky gravity thing, but what are you trying to prove you can do? Maybe that you can run on very little sleep as long as you have enough caffeine. Prove that there is nothing that will stop you, nothing you can't overcome, no enemy that isn't overcomable. Maybe you're trying to prove that you don't actually need people to help you. Trying to prove that we don't have limits. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets of God declare that God is trying to offer the people rest. He is offering them a place of rest. And over and over again, the people go, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite examples is Jeremiah chapter six, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Trust it, travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. But you reply, no, that's not the road we want. No, that's not the one we desire. Rest is where we remember that we have limits. And that means that we remember we are not God. Because in trying to prove over and over again that we don't have limits, what we're trying to prove is that we can be God without God. Rest is where we remember that we have limits and we are not God. And rest is where we remember that God knows we have limits and he's okay with that. Now, maybe you don't need that reminder. I need that reminder a lot because I look at the limits in my life and it feels like ways that I'm failing God to the point that my spiritual director had me write down on a note card that I stuck next to the mirror in my bathroom. Dear Josh, I know you are a human with limits and I am okay with that. Love God. I need that reminder often. It is good to remember that we have limits, to remember that God knows we have limits and to rest anyway. Now, most of us don't actually rest. And I don't just mean most of us in this room. I mean like most of us in our society. We don't actually rest. We escape. We escape into our phones, into some fictional world of stories or video games. We escape into following somebody else's life so we don't actually have to reflect on our own we escape. I think rest is scary because it will cause reflection. It means facing thoughts and emotions and needs that we've been trying to avoid admitting we have. I think this is often why Sabbath feels like a burden. We're so busy running that we don't want to feel the whiplash that comes with slamming on the brakes to stop. Or somebody put it last night, we're so busy running, we know we're gonna fall on our face when we get off the treadmill. 
but we are not made to live like we don't have limits, emotions, or needs. God gave us limits for a reason, and it is not to hold us back. It is because in our limits, in our limits, not despite them, in our limits, we are able to receive the love and care of other people and of God our Father in breaking away from the striving and the proving and the overcoming, just to rest, we get to experience the love and care of God. We get to experience his love and care with him, which brings us to the second reason for Sabbath. Sabbath is for rest and Sabbath is for worship. If worship is responding to what God has revealed, as we've defined it, then we should intentionally take time to respond with praise and honor and love. Now, do you worship God in the hard work that you do day in and day out? I hope so. I certainly believe you can. That every day that you go to work, no matter how much you dislike your job, is an opportunity to serve God, honor God, love God by how you go about your business, by how you care for other people, by the words that you say, by the light that you shine into dark places. Absolutely. Do you worship God by loving your neighbor, loving your kids, loving your parents? Absolutely. Absolutely those things that we do in love and honor of God and the people that he loves is also an act of worship. But we also talked last week about Sabbath as the ultimate act of trust. The remembering that all good things come from God, remembering that it is not all up to you, pushing back against the darkness that tells us we only have value and we only matter if we produce. Taking time to directly recognize that God is more important than what you create or what you earn or the accolades you receive. That taking time to intentionally remember is an act of worship. So here's the thing. Worship in whatever way works best for you. If it's music, sing. If it's a walk in the woods, walk. If it's a nap, take a holy nap. I don't know if you have seen the commercial, for whatever reason, the things that I watch, this comes up a lot, but it's uh, a commercial for a company we won't name that's a, a do-it-yourself furniture company, okay? And they, that was pretty good. You guys caught on fast. What? The commercial starts with, we're just looking at a guy napping on his couch and the voiceover says, life is so expensive today. So how come Omar is napping? Omar is napping because he got his furniture at this place. And so he can rest easy knowing he saves some money. I would argue Omar is napping because he wore himself out trying to follow their stupid directions that don't make any sense. And by the time he built the couch, he just collapsed on it and is taking a nap. But I don't need to nap because I saved some money. I don't need to nap because I have luxurious, cheap furniture. I can take a nap 
because I know a God that I can trust. I can nap because I know God is taking care of things and it is not all up to me. So if nap is worship and you needed permission for a worshipful nap, by all means, by all means, trust in God enough to take a nap. Now, is it good to stretch yourself to worship in ways that you wouldn't normally? Yes, but as a Sabbath practice, worship in a way that gives you joy. Because the third reason for worship is that Sabbath is for delight. And when Sabbath feels like a burden and not a gift, we completely miss this reason that God offers it to us as a gift. A few years ago at one of our men's retreats, uh, we started talking one morning at the beginning of a session about Sabbath. I don't think it was supposed to be the topic for that day, but it ended up being the session. It was great. And we landed on this definition of Sabbath that has stuck with me that Sabbath is, quote, nothing laborious. Now, that has been a really helpful definition for me, that through the years, it has helped me discern what my next thing is on a Sabbath day. Does that thing feel laborious? Well, then that's tomorrow me's problem. Or better, heading into some sort of Sabbath is that thing going to be laborious? Then I should get it done today so it is not on my mind tomorrow. Now, there are limits around that. I'm not sitting at home going, does it feel laborious to go pick up my kids from school? Yes, they're just gonna have to walk. I don't, I... So there's some limits. But it's, it's helpful to me. I, I don't go out and weed the yard on the Sabbath day. I won't do it. It is my least favorite chore by miles. I would rather plunge toilets all day. Not that I'm offering to do that, but I would rather do that all day than go out and weed. That is, that is not only laborious, but there is no delight in it at all. If that is a joy for you, by all means, go out and take care of your garden and weed. And might I recommend my yard? I do not want to hold you back from things that you enjoy. So please, I will leave plenty for you to take care of. I love this verse. Nothing laborious has been helpful, but I, I love this verse I came across a little while ago in Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah is talking about the Sabbath day. It's Isaiah 15, verse 13. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, all that proving and striving, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day. And don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor, Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. Sabbath is to be a delight to delight in what God has given you and be content in that, to delight in having limits and knowing that God is okay with that, to do something that brings you joy because there's nothing a loving parent enjoys more than the joy of their children, especially when it is something that the parent also enjoys. 
How much more true is that? If that is true of earthly parents, how much more true is it of our heavenly father? The Westminster Catechism Catechism is not a word we use very much anymore, but it's a very churchy word that basically means a summary of Christian thought and belief, a a summary of Christian doctrine in a simple, easy kind of question and answer format. So if you want to know what do Christians believe, Westminster Catechism would be a pretty solid place to start. It's a particular branch of Christian thought, but it's a good place to start. Now, why do I bring up catechism here? Because the very first question and answer, I said the most important question we can ask and answer is this. What is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of being human? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever to worship and glorify, to be found in him and rest in him and take joy in him. And in that sense, Sabbath is a practice for heaven. And I don't mean floating on clouds with angels and harps. We can, if we could get rid of that image of heaven, that would be lovely. Heaven is a place of rest, as a place of worship, as a place of active delight and joy. Now, what is the difference between an escape and a Sabbath delight? Because I also enjoy getting lost in my phone. I think it's helpful to ask the question, are you finding joy in your phone or in your fantasy world or in your heroes or are you finding joy in him? A quick story of a different practice, but a a good word of warning. Uh, This past spring, I uh, decided, uh, being inspired by and encouraged by some people I really uh, respect, to fast a meal a week. This is not a massive commitment. It is simply not eating one meal a week as a holy practice. And so I did this faithfully for some number of weeks. And I was talking to my friend Wayne, who I know does this really well. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm just not really getting anything out of it. Like I'm, I'm doing it and I, I'm doing better at doing it than I thought I would do, be. Weird English sentence. Anyway, but I'm not getting anything out of it. And I won't be able to quote him word for word, but he essentially looked at me and he said, you know, I found that you have to have God in it. <laughs> to get something good out of it. Oh, that's the step I'm missing. Well, that does feel like an important one when you put it that way. That to simply do the practice, to do the act, is not actually what this is about. This is about building our relationship with God through rest and worship and delight. Our God delights in you. He loves you and he loves your joy, what gives you joy. And he's inviting you to delight then in him. So give yourself space and time to not strive, to not prove, to not try to achieve. Your heavenly father wants you to take the time for rest and worship and joy. So here's the big question this week to take home with you. 
Will you receive this gift from God? It is a gift, not a burden or command to weigh you down and hold you back. It is a gift made especially for you. And then if yes, how? How are you going to receive this? I heard this week that one expert on good habits says that if you want to start building a habit of flossing your teeth every night, you start by flossing one tooth a night. That feels slightly ridiculous to me, but you start by flossing one tooth, put it down, walk away, and then you build slowly, ever slowly you need to, from there until pretty soon, or not so soon, you have a habit built of flossing your teeth every night. Now, you may be somebody who needs to go all in on establishing a new habit, and you just, you know yourself, and you know that if you do one little bit at a time, you're just gonna get stuck and it's not gonna, you need to go all the way in and like carve out a whole day for Sabbath right away. And that may just be the next step for you, or you may need to go, I'm going from nothing to all in. But most of us, we'll find trying to go all in on any new practice really discouraging. So what is the floss one tooth version of Sabbath for you? What is the next small step? When Wayne was sharing about prayer last fall, he mentioned a woman who would take her apron and throw it over her head and sit in the corner of her kitchen and her umpteen kids just knew you do not disturb mama when the apron's over her head. She's talking to Jesus. I don't know if you need to get an apron and put it over your head, whatever you need to do to establish 15 minutes. Start with 15 minutes of I am going to rest, to trust, maybe to delight in something with God. Take 15 minutes. Maybe the next step for you is an hour. And I don't mean like come to church and check the box. I mean like you've taken a time in your life, in your day to day, some step beyond what you've been doing to rest, worship, or delight in God, to feel the uncomfortableness of stopping, to feel the calm of a deep breath, to feel the joy of doing something just for the sake of delight. Intentionally block out time to trust God for your provision and safety, to trust that your value to the creator has nothing to do with what you create. Because our God delights in you and he invites you, he invites us to delight in him. So let me pray for us as we do that. Father God, thank you for this invitation, for this gift. It is for some reason a lot easier for us to receive the gift of earning some praise or accolade or raise. I suppose the reasons why are different for all of us. We don't want to admit limits. We don't want to stop. We don't want to try to figure out who we are without proving it. Father, would you remind us of your gentle grace, of your joy in us and the joy we can find in you. 
Father, would you invite us to come and rest and to know that we are known by you and loved by you and we are okay with you. Thank you for being that safe space for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.